Hi Venters, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. In each episode, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I'm checking in with entrepreneur and businessman Leo Winstanley. Leo is the founder of Handicraft, which makes bespoke furniture tailor-made to their customers' requirements. They make everything from simple candle holders to kitchen accessories, household furniture and outdoor and garden furniture. I met Leo at a work event where his business was speaking and after hearing his hugely powerful story, I knew I had to get him on the Just Checking In pod. Handicraft was born out of a hugely traumatic moment in Leo's life. On 5th of May 2018, he was involved in a horrific car crash that wasn't his fault and left him with life-changing injuries. He lost complete use of his right arm, his dominant arm, and then suffered a mental health breakdown and he lives with chronic neuropathic pain in his right shoulder and side to this day, which he manages. After going into therapy, he took up woodworking after his counsellor suggested he learn a new skill. Leo wanted to prove to himself that he wasn't worthless and useless like his demons had been telling him. Learning woodwork one-handed is a huge challenge, but something that he has embraced, loved, and handicraft was the result of his endeavours. In this episode, we discuss his teaching journey, which he started out in, and the events of that day in 2018, which changed his life forever. We explore the post-traumatic stress he experienced as a result of the crash, anxiety, depression, the pillars of support his partner and two older brothers were for him in crisis and recovery, and how the genesis of handicraft began from a moment of huge trauma. So this is how my check-in with Leo Winstanley went. Leo, welcome to the Just Check In pod. Thank you very much for letting me check in with you, mate. After I heard your powerful story at the work event that I was at, that you were at too, I knew I had to get you on the pod. I came racing over to you to ask you about your story. First of all, how are you, mate, on this uh, Friday morning? I'm okay, Freddie. Thank you very much for inviting me on this. I genuinely feel honoured. Very kind of you, sir. Thank you. You're very welcome, mate. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on. Your journey is so incredible, mate, and it's such a testament to your resilience, to your anti-fragility, to you know everything we're going to speak about, and a very inspirational for other people to listen to, to give them the courage and the uh, bravery to be able to overcome huge barriers and come out the other end like you have. So we've got loads to discuss. Without further delay, are you ready to start the show and talk all about it, mate? I absolutely am. Let's go. Let's start your podcast by diving into your mental health journey, Leo. So I ask all my special guests on this topic this question first. Take me back to early life, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Leo we meet here? Or a teenage years. That's an interesting one because back into life, growing up in Wigan, it's like a a former mining town, you know, like... Rugby uh, League! Yeah, Rugby <laughs> League, yeah, yeah. 
you know, tough place, tough people. Like, you know, youngest of three lads, you know, my, my eldest brother's about nine years older than me. Middle brother's about five years older than me. Grew up in a household. It was all about sport and music, mate. Both my brothers really sporty. My dad was a former amateur boxer when he was a young lad growing up in uh, in the Dingle in Liverpool, like, you know. So, yeah, it was good, mate. It was a good time. I, I look back on it with so many fond memories. You know, I, I was lucky enough to start learning musical instruments when I was very young, like eight, nine, you know, onwards. Uh, really sporty. Martial arts played a massive part in my life when, I, you know, again, mid- Think back to my dad, the amount of times he was either stood on the sideline or he was sat at the back of the room, you know, like uh, taking me to music lessons, martial arts lessons, football, you know, anything and everything. They were there. So it was it was good times, mate. You know, it really was. Both the parents were very hardworking people. You know, they really instilled that work ethic when you were young. And that that was, you know, I look back on it and really fond memories. In terms of mental health, you know, it's a difficult one to say. I'd Probably not really, because that time we were the children of war babies, you know, like, so both my parents were born in the Second World War. And, you know, growing up in Wigan in the 80s, you know, the topic of mental health, I don't ever recall it ever being brought up, mate. You know, that, that, that's the, the start reality of it. So, yeah, you know, look back to then. It, it set me up really well for going into college, then going on to uni and then going into me vocation that went into post-uni. Mm. Like. Let's talk about that now, because before the accident, which changed your life in so many ways, you started out life as a teacher, which you still are at time of recording. Tell me yeah. first what attracted you to teaching and particularly music teaching. Particularly music teaching, right? Okay, touch bomb. I was just saying before, you know, I was introduced to music at a very young age, you know, like my mum and dad, a huge vinyl collection, you know, like, <laughs> and I was, you know, I was indoctrinated in the right way. So, you know, it was, it was the Beatles, it was Motown. Was it Northern, it was Northern, Stevie. Northern Rock? Yeah. Was it <laughs> no, Northern, no, Soul? Northern Soul? <laughs> that was the big part yeah. of the casino. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mysteriously burnt down <laughs> in the mid late eighties. So that was great for me. And then, and, you know, I took up piano, keyboard, organ lessons around the age of eight, nine. Uh, didn't really work out. And I started again when I was about 12. And I had a really good teacher. You know, he, he was only really young. He was only about 18, I think, at the time. Uh, I called John. And we just clicked. So it became a real passion. You know, it became almost like, a, I wouldn't say an obsession, but, you, you know, I, I used to practice for hours but enjoyed it you know it, it was never like go and practice you know I'd be there and got into bands when I was at secondary school and stuff and that was you know that was a great time it became a logical progression when I finished my GCSEs because sport was my other big thing you know so uh, in terms of teaching it was PE teaching and music teaching so I studied PE at uh, A level but I was carrying on I was doing my music outside of college I was doing my teaching qualifications then at the age of I started teaching the uh, piano and keyboard when I was 16, 17. Uh, and then the idea of uni floated and, and the martial arts sort of thing was another thing because I used to help do a little bit of teaching with some of the younger ones and when they were coming in. So it kind of became a logical progression. I loved the idea of helping people. You know, I had some real positive teacher influences when I was younger and, you know, I loved sport, I loved music. So it just became that way. And off I went to university, I came to Liverpool when I was 18 pretty much stayed here ever since you know it's where I made it my home and yeah getting into secondary school teaching you know I loved it you know I started I was really young you know I was 22 and the first school I taught at I was comfortably the youngest by a significant margin you know it, it, it was generally an older crowd of teachers 
Uh, it was still pretty much a job for life back then. Things have changed a little bit now. And it was in a real challenging part of uh, inner city Liverpool, shall we say. I like the thing about, you know, the sport and music side of stuff. It was an outlet for a lot of kids, you know, because everybody listens to music. You can get people infused in that way. In Liverpool, it's, you know, the city is born on sport mm. and music. You know, the, uh, that's the two passions here. It is almost the way of life. The Beatles, you know, is still a huge part of life in Liverpool, you know, and across the world. It's, it's amazing to think that these guys, these four lads from Liverpool who had such a huge influence on not just the city of Liverpool, but popular culture in the world, you mm. know, so I loved all that. And uh, I think the enthusiasm rubbed off, mate, put it that way, mm. you know, because I was, uh, I was very enthused about the subjects that I taught and, uh, and I loved it, mm. you know, uh, uh, you know, I really do. I still see it as a vocation and you have to look at it that way mm. because it's not a nine to five job, mate. You know, mm. it's one of them things that, you know, when you clock out at the end of the day, you don't leave it in the building, you know, you do take it home with you. And the extracurricular side of stuff, you know, in PE and in, in sport and music, that is equal to the actual teaching time itself, you know, because that's the time when you get the kids who really want to be there, you know, they want to be in bands, they want to be singers, you know, they want to be in the next Beyonce, they want to be in the next whoever, you know, and you can get them and work with them and feed off that enthusiasm. It's mutual. It really is, you know, like, because when you see kids and getting enthused by it, it gives you that kind of energy. It's like a bus, mate. It really is, you know, and that's what I love so much about it. Mm. The day that changed your life, mate, came on the 5th of May 2018. So it's over five years ago now. Yeah. Just take it me is. and the listeners yeah. back to your memories of the day, what happened and the aftermath. Okay, right. So it's the 5th of May. So it was the Saturday of the bank holiday weekend. And I was saying you don't clock off at five o'clock. I was in school in the morning. Um, it was in the middle of... I have what we call two silly seasons in teaching. One's the run up to Christmas because <laughs> you're doing a Christmas concert because <laughs> you're doing a Christmas concert and that takes over your life. And the other is a kind around March, April, May time, which is the build up to coursework deadlines for music. So submission of pieces, you know, and then you start the revision thing for the exam. So I was in school in the morning going through recordings and annotating them, you know, giving them the marks and uh, getting all the paperwork and everything sorted. It's a monumental task. It's, it's a, you know, nightmare, but you've got to get it done. You know, you're ready for it. Right? And there was only me in school, me and the caretaker. That was it. There was nobody else in the building. And Brian, the caretaker, he came in to ask me how I was, which literal translation was he was teeing off for golf and needed me out of the building, <laughs> really, you know. So I was like, uh, so he's like, you know, so uh, I packed everything up, backpack was full to bursting, and I head off. I only live about a 15-minute drive from home. And rang Pam and said, well, it was a gorgeous day. Uh, so we'll have a barbecue, a couple of drinks that afternoon. And I'd normally go straight to the supermarket, and I didn't because I had my backpack, and this was worth my life was in that bag, you know, like I didn't have any photocopies or anything. So I thought, right, I can't leave this in the car when I go to the supermarket. So I called into the house on the way back, literally dumped the bag in the lounge, said, right, I'm off. I'll see you in a bit. And off I went. And only a quarter of a mile, half a mile from where I live. Uh, I was driving through this road thousands of times. And next thing, I didn't know what happened, Freddie. It was, I was later told that I was hit side on, driver's side on, I think they call it T-bone, mm -hmm, I think is the mm -hmm. actual proper term. Like, uh, I didn't see it. 
I didn't even have time to go, you know, I didn't even have time to brace, brace. I just got hit by this car and they'd flown through a giveaway sign at significant speed, a 20 mile an hour zone and the estimated over 50 miles per hour and hit me side on. And I do have memories of that part and they're memories I'm still trying to process now in various therapies and going through. And one was the noise of this unbelievable bang like metal kind of you know smell burning rubber type electrical type smell and what i talk about and i'll be open about this now because i talk about this in the emdr sessions which we'll go on to later it was a sequence of colors kind of like primary colors circle type things and they became like a spinning top Mm. so they span into each other and they were spinning down a circle and i have to be honest freddie when I was kind of visualizing this, I had the tinnitus ringing in my ears, the bang, it was time. I thought it was that was me. You know, I thought I was dying. In fact, I was convinced I was dying. Um, and it's, oh, that's tough, man. You know what I mean? That's, mm. you know, because you don't, and then darkness kind of thing that came. And then the next thing I do remember is a guy over me who was behind this car, who was protecting me, Freddie, because, one of the people got out of the car and completely lost it and took it upon themselves to start like throwing bricks and stuff at me, mate. That's, um, uh, which was a, you know what I mean? Mm. So this guy, and he was only a young lad as well. I put him early twenties or something, dead calm, in control of the situation. Even when the police arrived, people hadn't calmed down and stuff. So I got put into an ambulance police officer came in i do remember that bit you know because i'm in and out at this point everything is really fuzzy you know i, I do have those vivid, vivid memories i think for obvious reasons because you know like the things that you know they're imprinted in, in, on my brain and never gonna go away and you know he kind of breathalyzed me and stuff like and he said you, you know let's get you off let's get you sorted out so and, and paramedic was amazing she was incredible but it was on the journey from the accident if you like to the hospital i said to her i said my right side is cold. My right arm's gone really cold. My right side, I said, I said my, my hand feels really weak. And she was like, brilliant, these people. And dead calm. And she said, just want to say, you're in shock. She said, just don't worry about things. Coldness, you'll feel. I said, no, I said, I don't feel. I said, it's just, it's here. And she goes, let me hold your hand. Grip my hand. And I was really trying. I could still move my hand at that point. And I was like, you know, like really tensing. And, and she said, and she said, oh, it's, it's probably the shop. Well, don't, you know, don't worry, just stay. And I could see, I could see it in her eyes, Freddie. You know, I, I, I could see, you know, like it's, there's a phrase that sticks in my mind sometimes, the eyes are the mirror of the soul. Mm. And, and, and I could see in her eyes, she knew, she knew something wasn't right. She was like, you know, just don't, don't you worry. So we got into the hospital and then, you know, uh, it then became over the course of two or three days, things just worsened quite significantly to the point where I had no feeling in my arm, couldn't move my fingers, couldn't move my arm at all. This horrific, I feel like I have ice cold water running down my insides. It actually feels like I'm pouring ice cold sweat. You think, well, what's going on? You put your arm and everything, you know, your arm's dry and stuff, but it has this feeling running around the inside. And then, then the poker, the hot poker pain started. If you were to take a point from here, here, back and underside and met in the heart of your shoulder, it feels like a burning hot poker is being pushed right onto that sweet spot. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening to me? Like, you know, so fear, 
you know what I mean? Just got a grip of me, it really did. And I'd done my complete teacher stuff. What I mean by that is I put the mask on and pretend, and pretend things are all right. You know, I'd talk with the medical people. I'd have select different memory. You know, I'd remember certain things where they talked about potential and positive, and I'd forget about the the reality of the mm. situation, you know, the way, the way things were going. So I was in hospital for a period of, you know, I think it was a week, 10 days, something like that. And then he said it, it was better that I then went home and then to be treated as an outpatient via orthopedics, what it was at first, and then the Walton Centre, which is a neurological hospital in Liverpool, one of the world's leading. We've got it on our doorstep, you know, so fantastic people there. So that was that day, Freddie, mm. you know what I mean? And, you know, the bits I can remember... I can remember it like it happened yesterday, man. Mm. I really can. When you came to the realisation that this injury was permanent and it was also mm. going to affect your ability to play music, obviously, yeah. at this point, you've got an amazing partner, yeah. supportive family, great yeah. friends, children, etc. However, did you yeah. think in that moment, naturally but irrationally, my life is over here? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah, 100%, because if you look at it this way, music, teaching, you know, all that kind of thing, that has been all I've ever known. You know, if you look at it that way, you know, I started playing the piano, the organ, the keyboard, you know, when I was about seven or eight years old. So, you know, you're not that long into your, your early memories, you know. So I remember playing the piano at primary school concerts or, you know, playing the organ at church for, you know, mum and dad proud as punch, you know, and, and that was like at the age of like 11, you know, so it's all I've ever known. And when you, in effect, have it explained to you that that's being taken away from you, then it's, that's hard, mate. That's, you know, I mean, that's, that's, it's, but, but, you know, head and shoulders by far the most difficult thing I can process it and a lot of the psychologists, the counsellors, all those kind of people, they talk about the process of acceptance, don't they? Mm. You know, it's, it's accepting change because that's what it boils down to, isn't it? Fundamental change. And I can accept what happened to me, but I can never accept the result of what happened mm. to me. You know, and they're, they're two very distinct, different things. When the degree of permanency, you know, like when I realise this is it, this is it, this is permanent, I just... I just completely lost my way, mm. really, you know, because it, it did feel like this is it, you know, because it's it's all I've ever known, you know, and you think like... Um, That's your identity, isn't it? And you don't have that. It is, mm. and it, it forms a huge part, you know, that that is a huge part of your identity, a huge part of your way of life. People remember you, you know, so you're, you know, oh, yeah, they remember him when he sat down mm. at the piano and everybody started singing and, the, you know, that kind of thing, you know. And so when you meet people, you remember them by you know, little connections you make, don't you? You know, uh, and virtually all the connections made with me were through music as a musician, you know, or a, as a teacher, as, as a person, friends, you know, that kind of thing. And to know that was no longer going to be a possibility was soul-destroying, mate. Mm. It's, I remember having this conversation with um, a psychologist at the Walton Centre, is it rocked me to your fundamental core beliefs, literally everything that defines you as a person so that could be the way you live your life the way you conduct yourself around people the way you interact with people for some people you know it could be like that your faith you know it could, you know that kind of thing it literally rocked me to my core 
because you think it's not irrational to think these things, Freddie, because you think like, what have I done to deserve this? Mm. You go down that route of, well, you know, I conduct myself. I've, 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 I've tried mm. to be a good person in my life. You know, uh, I've entered a vocation. You know, I, I've given up so much of my life for the benefit of other people. Sacrifices you've made, you know, all those kind of things. And you think, and then it comes back to the, why me? Mm. Why has this happened to me? And that's just horrific. Mm. It really is. You know, it's just one of those things that I will never accept I don't think you know I can, I can accept the change in my life you know I can accept the physical changes I can accept the different you know the way I have to conduct myself in life now but I don't think I'll ever accept that mm. what's happened because that's just it literally it flawed me completely mm. so would it be fair to say it wasn't just a crisis of health but a crisis of self oh yeah yeah that's what a great way to put it mm. you know because it, there's obviously the physical health issues that became as a result of that and you know we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later in regards to pain as well as you know disability and but I've heard this said many times you know I didn't recognize myself when I looked in the mirror but I didn't recognize myself I no longer recognized myself as a person certainly wasn't me and I just felt hollow that's probably a a good way to describe it I just felt hollow and I felt numb Mm. and uh, that's where I think Probably where it rock bottom really, mm. you know, that's that, that around that time. We've touched on a little bit the chronic pain that it's caused you, mate. And you said to me yeah. that this chronic pain has been far more debilitating than the physical disability of losing your ability to use your right oh. arm. So just tell me and the listeners yeah. what that's been like and the impact yeah. on your physical health, but more so your mental health. Yeah, 100%, mate, 100%, because there'll be people listening now who live with chronic pain. It's one of the invisible illnesses, you know, so, you know, we talk about mental health as an, you know, as an invisible because you don't see it. But chronic pain, for me, has been far more debilitating. I was right-handed. I've lost the use of my right arm. I can bend my elbow a little bit, but I've, I've no functional use of my right arm. And... I had a conversation with the consultant neurologist. So when it came to surgeries I was having and stuff, and I was talking about pain, about the effect it was having on my life. And we were looking at potential surgical options. I'm saying to the consultant, said, if you put two envelopes on the table, doctor, one was you give me the use of my arm back, but I had to live with the pain. Or if the other one was you could take some of the pain away, but I'd get no use of my arm back it would be the second envelope every single day, every single day of the week, all right? And I think the reasons, because I've had plenty of time to process this, is this isn't psychology talking or anything. This is just me because I'm not versed in all that kind of stuff. I might go back to my Catholic upbringing this, but the holy trinity of um, sleep, mental health, and functionality, being able to function in society and life, okay? And one of the impacts on them then the other two's gone and sleep pain lack of sleep sleep deprivation mm, it's horrendous honestly knock I think on effect it, knock on effect it. yeah yeah knock on effect on your mental health and the knock on effect of you not being able to function prior to surgery on the went in june and i am not being melodramatic here freddie i didn't sleep for over five years because of the pain i at best rested wow because it, it's constant, mm. it's not up and down, it's constant 
and on occasions the constant gets worse which what i go i get what i go into what's called meltdown pain you can literally just pass out pain mm. where you just literally just you know like you end up because you're in that much pain but it's a constant and it eats away at everything you know what i mean your, your mental state i described it as losing the power of rational thought and that's how much pain can affect you because you just can't think of anything you can't focus on anything and it really and truly got a grip of me you know and i recall a time this was one of the lowest ebbs was i couldn't lie down because i was in so much pain i couldn't sit down because i was in so much pain and i remember spending a night in the lounge stood up with my head resting on the wall because that was the only thing that I could do. I say I couldn't even like because if it sit down, it's neuropathic pain, it's chronic neuropathic pain, nerve pain. I've had my fair share of sporting accidents and breaks and leg breaks and broke my rib and all kinds of different injuries, but I have never known anything that's even scratched the surface in nerve pain. Mm. Ready and it's 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 so difficult you know i mean i think i've hopefully articulated as well as i can there because the issue when you talk with pain with people is and i always take it in the best way i've never taken offense to it or anything is people everybody's experienced pain so they feel like they have the ability to have an informed opinion on it it's like everybody's been to school so they think they know that they can <laughs> the way they can relate to tea. Oh, when I was at school, and you're like, oh, that was a long time ago. Things have changed. Um, but pain, it is, you know, like I remember when I done my back, and you go, yeah, yeah, you know, and I'm always kind of absolutely. I know it's really difficult, isn't it? But that was another thing for shutting down because I just couldn't, you know, I just couldn't rationalize anything anymore, you know, and I was just consumed, I literally consumed by it, Freddie, mm. and it, it was just horrific and and that as i say going back to just the beginning bit of this that was far more in life you learn to adapt you know i've taught myself pretty much to you know to be left-handed i can write capitals and numbers now i don't have handwriting but you know i can write welcome to the club mate of left-handed people even if it was involuntary (laughs) yeah how do you guys even function in society? <laughs> With difficulty, mate. <laughs> when I picked up a pen for the first time. I was yeah, like, mate, the smudging. Cool. Yeah, the smudging was yeah. a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. My natural instinct was to go from, if I had a signature now, I would go from right to left because that just feels not doing this. Oh, mate. Oh, yeah. My dad so... tried to make me write like straight when I wrote left-handed, but I was always like, no, no, get away from me. So I do a mix of... So some people, when they're left-handed, they go like this. Listeners can't see, but they literally write with their arm all the way over the other side to write. I kind of go like this. So as I'm writing, the only person you used to see in exam halls was me going like this, licking my hand and going like that, rubbing it, shaking it, and then writing again. (laughs) Oh, it's, yeah, I was that soldier when I picked up a pen with my Mm. left hand for the first time. But as a human, you know, you do adapt because you have to. Mm -hmm. That's it, you know, and... uh, I found I could actually get on with that side of things. Mm. You know, that it was difficult accepting the things I couldn't, you know, do any longer. But the actual pain side of things was just horrific, absolutely horrific. Given how extreme that pain was, mate, you spoke about the surgery mm. and when you went to have it operated on your spinal cord. But did you ever have yeah. conversations with your doctor where you were saying, you know, if it stops the pain, 
can you amputate it off or can you create a mm. robotic version or do you know what I mean like something like that did it get to that point where you were considering yeah. options like that I never considered that aspect of you know like the amputation side of things can go with the phantom pain you know like and I haven't completely lost I have regained a tiny amount of function in my thumb and my index finger. It doesn't really have any use to be honest, to be honest, like, you know what I mean? But believe it or not, there's actually many more complications than people would perceive about things like those kind of procedures. So, but yeah, the robot, you know, you think there was always that kind of thing of, is there something going to happen? You know, can they repair this? And, and will, will this be, you know, a thing of the future? And, and you read these things and, and you know, about, Someone I remember who recently regained the use of the legs. It was I think it was in Canada or something. Then you start getting these, the hope. Yeah, the hope. But I've been always cautious not to manage false hope. You know what I mean? I think I didn't know the pain aspect was medicated for the first couple of years, and at best it possibly took some of the edge off. But I was taking a ridiculous cocktail of medication, mate, and I made the decision to come off the opioids. Um, yeah that's probably a good choice of, mate yeah considering what i've yeah, read about the opioid know, crisis in america those can be very addictive yeah yeah, yeah. all the the weaning off phase shall we say mm. is not my proudest moments in life you know what i mean uh itchy blood was probably one of the best ways that's how you know like that kind of <sighs> think of that and that for me was the oromorph morphine stuff so that's you know not even getting up towards the oxycotton stuff in the states mm. or fentanyl those kind of things you know but it was more to do with the secondary side effects of the medication was becoming just as all right it was numbing some of some of the pain but all i was doing was sitting all lying on the couch all day mm. you know because you just literally at this point i was so i'm in my mid i'm 48 now so i'm in my mid 40s at this point i'm thinking is this it now for the next say i live a happy life another 40 years am i just going to spend lying on the couch staring at the walls so i made the decision i spoke to my doctor about it and i didn't know anything about at this stage about spinal cord stimulators about spinal cord implants or that kind of aspect of pain until i met dr sharma at the at the walton center and he floated this idea and this was february 2020 so this is just before just as covid was coming and he, he said there is a procedure that you know we think we could help you with because and it's to help specifically for nerve pain. And he talked about the spinal cord implant. And I'm literally, as he's talking, I'm going, what? you know, like, you know, like, you know, like these kind of like, what, really? And, and and he was like, yeah. And he said, we think, you know, you could be potential person for something like this. And I was like, wow. And it set me on a pathway that was three, three and a half years from consultation to final implant i had a trial implant last year and that's to show over oh, i know in the states it's different about spinal cord stimulators there's a different approach to it over there but here it was a huge process of pain management you know like it was every single phase before they made a decision about this one and that's how long it takes to go so pain management programs physiotherapy psychotherapy occupational health occupational therapy you know the whole thing the whole look at your life in its entirety and then getting to that stage going actually we think this is, can help you so that, mm. that was three years in the making when we spoke off air you said to me that when you tried to initially return to work you weren't able to teach the way you used to be able to you couldn't show the yeah. students how to do something yourself you'd have to ask someone to do it or try another method and yeah. you said to me, yeah. daily teaching was a reminder of what I could no longer do. 
I was not the person I wanted to be. How did you manage that? Oh God, it was a struggle that, Mm. you know, it was a really, really strange time because I was off work for the best part of, it was nearly two years. It was 18 months getting on to two years, I think. But I returned in the January of 2020. So, you know, just as the world was starting to change and I hadn't psychologically prepared myself for it. And I don't, even looking back now, I don't know why. I can't explain why, because I'd had to learn to adapt in the house. You know, uh, we, you know, got lots of, you know, adaptations and stuff and I'd started to do other, so everything was different. And for some reason I returned to work thinking everything would be the same. And I can't, I can't even explain why. I think it was probably at that stage, looking back, Freddie, I think I was probably still in denial and it wasn't really until it was boom, thrust right in front of my face. I was like, oh my God, this is horrendous. And Things had improved a bit in my life since the, you know, and I was making improvements and, and it sideswiped me massively, you know, because there was nothing, there was no intention that people weren't trying to be nasty mm. or anything like that. It was just a return. And it was like those little moments were like, sir, I don't understand this. Can you show me, you know, what does this mean? And instinctively for X amount of years, 25 years, you would have gone sat, you know, at keyboard or something. So I'll move up a bit. Let me show you. And watch those light bulb moments a hundred times a day, probably more. And those hundred times a day became a hundred times reminder of what you can't do anymore. That was just horrific. It was absolutely horrific because COVID kind of delayed things a bit because everything changed so much, you know, practical subjects. You know, it went to home educating. And then when we did return, you couldn't really do anything. You know, you couldn't do, do much practical stuff because of, you know, if you used a keyboard, you know, that meant you got another class coming in and you know, all that kind of, you know, sanitizing stuff and all that. So it wasn't really until everything post-COVID had calmed down. So we're talking a couple of years after me returning that I realized the severity of it all, mm. really. And it knocked me back so many paces. It scared me mm. because... I've always been one of the first in to work. You know, I've always been one of those, got in dead early. I like to get myself planned and prepped and then I'll go and make myself a cup of tea, you know, get myself ready for the day. And I was coming in earlier. I was leaving later to try and come up with plans, ideas. How am I going to circumnavigate this? You know, like, you know, using technology. We ended up uh, with a support worker and stuff, you know, last year. And I couldn't cope with it that's the start reality of it you know as i said it just everything became a constant reminder of what i could no longer do simple things freddie like separating the leads on headphones shall we say a two-handed an able-bodied person it'd take you 10 yeah i struggle with that 10 seconds, <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, yeah you know what i mean like yeah you know but when something like that became doing one pair became five minutes and you got 30 pairs there at the back and that it then started feeding into those constant reminders of like the worthlessness, the uselessness, pathetic. What's the point? You know what I mean? And I, it wasn't a coincidence. I think that once these starts, the negative thoughts, feelings, emotions start feeding yeah. into me. Yeah, but my PTSD traits started mm. ramping up again. Mm. You know, from a position for a while of relative calm, they started presenting themselves, and the force of them frightened mm. yeah, you know it made me you know, fearful mm. and that unfortunately fed into 
the anxiety demon over this shoulder and the depression demon over this shoulder and the PTSD fella over your head mm. just kind of niggling away at you. And I was falling down the well again. You know, like I, I thought I'd done well to climb out of that at some point from literally being at the bottom of it, not thinking that there's no way out. I found myself falling back down, mm. Fred, and, and that, that scared me, mate. Mm. That really did. That scared the life out of me. Well, let's talk about the post-traumatic stress because I tend to call it PTSI now or post-traumatic stress injury versus PTSD. Yeah. So one of your triggers is unexpected loud bangs, for example, and that comes back to the, yeah. the car crash. So yeah. how do you manage yeah. these and not let it mm. constrain your entire life? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. You know, unexpected loud bangs from the perspective of a music teacher, you know what I mean, where you're surrounded by drums and, you know, amplifiers and microphones and oh yeah and noisy kids <laughs> or just even, or even um, at home mate just a cupboard banging yeah, or something no no yeah, no just yeah. no, no just in life you're right out of all of them and you know there are several ptsd traits you know that that can present triggers for me that's the most difficult one well no no there's two there's the unexpected loud bangs and there's the no reason for a trigger and that can happen as well we'll talk about that one later that's even worse how do you manage it there are things that we have in place I say we, that's myself, my partner, Pam, because, you know, this is a, I'm acutely conscious of the fact that when something life-changing happens, it affects the people around you just as much as it does yourself, you know, like, you know, all right, you might have the physical injury or the emotional injury, but the knock-on effect of those around you is equal, possibly, if not worse, you know, in some cases. In regards to everyday life, I live quite a sheltered life in a sense if we go to the shop Pam comes with me you know that kind of thing she's around and I'm acutely aware of don't like to use the term burden but it can be you know like because mm. you think I yearn for the days of sometimes of just being a little bit independent yeah. or being a, a little bit spontaneous mm. I think is it emasculating for you at times yeah yeah I think so because or even infantilizing or both in the sense that you feel dependent dependent yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. and i am you know as much as i i think i've made inroads in, into some aspects of my life i am dependent and that is you know say about emasculating this stuff that is because if you feel in your life like you are reliant on someone because you are then you feel like you're having some aspects of your person stripped away from you you know because you think like and you feel like sometimes it's, it's not fair on, on the other yeah, person. Yeah, you feel like you're you think, stripping like, it away you know, from like, them too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. That's a difficult one to take for it because but what Pam is brilliant and really genuinely is, is she knows how to manage me better than I do. <laughs> you know, Kel surprise, um, mate. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know. Like, yeah. And I think it's important that in sort of counselling terms, they talk about the safe space or the safe zone, don't they? You know, and say for example, loud bangs and, and things like that, particularly you know, unexpected ones, is if you can be removed to what you might perceive as a safe place just to help bring yourself back down and prevent you going into a proper meltdown, then that is the way we kind of go about things. But it's very, at times, micromanaged, whereas the simple act of going to the shop or going into town or going to go and purchase some whatever you know those kind of things literally have to be micromanaged at times and 
that's the way it is. Because, you know, when PTSD traits do go off, it's not a nice person to be around. Mm. I'm not a nice person to, you know, it, it kind of can take over, you know, and you don't recognize yourself as a person because it's not you really. It's the way you're behaving. That's a tough one, mate. Mm. It really is. That's a tough one to manage at times. At one point, you said you felt subhuman. Was that your most difficult moment? Yeah, yeah. I think there was a definite rock bottom time. And I think what it was was because I just didn't know what was happening to me. You know, like I couldn't explain it. I couldn't rationalize it. I couldn't process it. I bottled everything up. Teachers are brilliant at it, Freddie, at putting the mask on, mm. right? They really are. You're up there with actors because that's what you are in effect, you know, like we're human beings, you know what I mean? And you might have had a tough morning and, you know, and you go in and, all right, sit down, kids, right? You're not going to believe what happened to me this morning. You know, you can't no, launch you're into a teacher. that. You put the mask Yeah, you're on. a teacher. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's you a blessing can't. and a curse, isn't it? You know, your role is to not divulge any of your private life, but the downside is you need to find another release to divulge your private life when it's not in work. <laughs> Well, that's exactly right. You know, and I think as well as you become like this event, this trauma, if you like, is I lost who I was because I was pretending to be someone else, you know, and, I, you know, I beca- literally I became the mask. When something, you know, like an accident or, you know, you're in an event or something, a bad time happens. Obviously, everybody gets in touch, don't they? You know, people you might not, you know, they heard about you. Oh, Leo, rang up. how's things? How are you getting on? Oh, I'm all right. You know, I mean, it's... You know, and I just completely straight batted everybody and I pretended I masked it with humour. Well, also, um, mate, bad news disclosure is really tough to do when you're having 50 different conversations of the same thing with people. Do you know what I mean? Of course. Yeah, of course. You know, because it comes a script as well, yes. doesn't it? Yeah. You know, because, you know, by the time you get to about number six, it's, uh, it's energy know, consuming, isn't dozen. it? Yeah. Yeah, of course, you know, and, and it becomes a script and you have that level of awareness that you don't want to be offloading onto people because you are aware of the crosses they have to burden at the time. So you just like, to, oh yeah, I mean, it's it's not great. You know, I'm struggling, but do you know what? You know, I'll be all right. You know, just getting on with life and throw a few jokes in and people hang up and go, oh, he's, he's doing well, all things considered. And I was doing anything, but seriously. And, you know, when you said the subhuman thing, on a human level, I was shutting down. I was, and... I was frightened. You think of big picture stuff as well. You think, this is it now. How am I going to learn? How are we going to pay the rent? How, are we gonna, is how long is this going to go on for? How long is it going to be before I get better? Why can't I focus on anything? Why am I walking up and down the garden all the time? Why am I being really short with the person closest to me? That's not me. What's happening to me? I couldn't process it. I couldn't, you know, I didn't know what was happening. So what do you do? You shut off. You know, you literally, you put all the armour up around you and think, right, well, it'll get better sometime, you know. And then it got to this horrible, horrible level where I didn't recognise myself as a person anymore. And I literally, I did use the term subhuman, then I didn't feel like a human being. That's, oh God, that was, that was bad, Freddie, that, jeez, when you look back on it, you know, that was, and that, I think as well, kind of the tail end of last year, I could, see myself I could see it coming back mm. you know like you know I, I thought I do not under any circumstances want to go back to being that person I was because you know I could lose everything could lose everyone you know everyone around me because if you go to that level again then you're shutting off from the world you're not communicating with people 
you're not returning calls, you're not returning messages, and you're not recognizing yourself as a person anymore. Freddie, that was bad times, mm-hmm. mate. Bad times. Let's talk about yeah. the positive times now. Let's talk about recovery because mm. it hasn't been a linear line, as I very well know, as you no. know, mate. So just tell yeah. me about the moment when you felt like you needed to get help and get professional support and right. what got you through it. Good question. Good one. It was, I'd say, several months post-accident, you know, and this this is where I was barely communicating with people, you know, with Pam, with, with anyone by this point. I was, as I said, shut down. And Pam made me an appointment to go to the GP, and she said, "We're going. Your call, what you say. You got you. You going, but we're going, right?" And sometimes uh, you like, need that. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah you, you need sometimes you need a belt up the ass. Mm. You know what I mean? You really. I was like, okay. So we got to the doctors, and I went in. Uh, younger doctor guy, I remember his name, Doctor Travis, and he totally got me off guard, right? Because he's coming. He's saying, "Come in, Leo. Sit down." I'm still convinced him and Pam hadn't spoken before I went in. I'm sure that never happened. But I sat down and he says, right, he says, okay, let's forget about your shoulder at the moment. Let's forget about your arm. So as difficult as that may be, how are you feeling? And obviously I must have had it on my face. And I just broke down in tears, Freddie, in his room. And, and I kid you not, uncontrollable tears. I just, and I couldn't, I couldn't speak. I couldn't mm. even. Oh, I've been there. Like, the only <laughs> you're overwhelmed yeah, with emotion. You just I, you're just muted by yeah. emotion. Yeah, muted. Yeah, I literally, and I was just crying, and I couldn't stop myself. And he was just talking to me, and the only way I could communicate with him was to nod me out of it. And he said, "It's clear to me, Lou. He said you you need help." But he said, "Are you willing?" to undergo that help and I was just like still just still couldn't stop myself crying and I, I was you know like I was beyond embarrassment by that point you know I was just kind of lost in this kind of void I was like yeah and he said look what we'll do someone will be in touch phone call in the next day or two and we're going to arrange to get you some support to get you some help so it might be the form of counseling it might be the form he says but he said are you open to that and I'm just nodding my head I was like okay and he said, you know, it's your partner with you. He said, you're going to be safe getting on with you. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. You know, and real care, due care. And I was like, yeah, okay. And he said, what I'll do is I'll speak to you again in a week or two. Come in. He says, you don't have to say anything. You know, so I'll just have a talk with you. And so if you're not up to talking, fine. But I want to see you again. You know, and I was like, and that is where, that was the rock bottom moment i mean imagine like you know you're a so where, where are we 2018 so you're a 42 43 year old man who can't control his emotions in floods of tears in a doctor's office you know you know it was just i've always kind of prior to you know like all this happening i never got over excited when amazing stuff happened and i never got too upset when real bad stuff happened either you know what i mean you know, if you had your naught to 10 and your naught to minus 10, you know, I hovered around the three or the four, you know, and I was going, and this was what's crap. I was going from naught to 10 or naught to minus 10, I should say, like, you know, that's how that sort of started the process of getting some help, mm. you know, and, uh, you know, I get, you know, you had these, this telephone thing and I was, Pam kind of said, if you want it to 
help and you want it to be of benefit, you have to tell them everything. You have to be open. Otherwise, what's the point? Mm. You know what I mean? And she was right. Absolutely right. So I kind of thought, right, this is... I understand it, Freddie. I understand the issue around why men are so reluctant to open up, you know, because you've got to think really, like, where do you do it? If you're having continued low mood or you're struggling and you know you are, you don't really bring it up at home because I talked before about, you know, you see the crosses, other your nearest and dearest, and you don't want to burden them with yeah. more. So do you, like, sort of open up in the changing rooms after you've just finished your footy match? Mm, no. We need the spaces, do do mate, the don't we? We need the spaces. And yeah, we need the trust yeah, more you... so. We need to know the trust is there that's much it. more. That's it, isn't it? And you're absolutely 100% right there. Because if you are going to open up with some of your innermost difficult thoughts and emotions and feelings, the trust has to be there. Yes. And the environment has to be right. Mm. And that's really what I think if, you know, anybody's listening to this in regards to the not in that correct state of mind, is it really has to be the professional route as it stands in that sense of the trust. If you don't feel like you can, with people around you or whatever, go down that professional route in terms of speak to the doctor, because as a default setting, the trust should be there. Yes. You know, if you speak to a doctor, you speak to a therapist, you speak to a counsellor, you shouldn't really be having to feel whether you think kind of, you know, you've got to go in and go, right, I've got to be prepared because they hear that, you know, I'm ready to offload it. Mm. You know what I mean? And, you know, and I think also a stranger or someone who doesn't know you is a good way of doing it because they're not prejudging you. Yes. You know, they, you know, because you, if you've changed as a person, as a result of the issues you're having, then people are comparing you to your previous self. You know, like, oh, you never used to be like this you know what I mean and and that can cause you to shut down even more mm. can it but if you walk in I'm not saying offload to a stranger like on the bus or something <laughs> you know oh, <laughs> do you mind if I no, <laughs> you know I'm talking about professionally because there is no prejudgment you know they don't know you you know they don't know what you've endured what you're going through you know that kind of thing they are there to help you with in the moment you know, and I think that's where, you know, people might disagree with what I'm saying there, but I think that's where the kind of getting professional support and help is a good way of going about things because for the reasons I've just said. Mm. Before we talk about the support that your partner Pam has given you, you also have two older brothers mm -hmm. mentioned earlier in the pod. They've, I do, yeah. they've been very yeah. big support for you as well, mate. So how did they help yeah. you from a male perspective and perhaps in different but equally as positive ways to the support that your partner Pam has given you? That's interesting. Yeah. Oh God. So our Andrew's my oldest brother and uh, Dominic's my middle brother. They know me inside out. That's the reality of it. And what I found most supportive, not the word, beneficial, I think, is they didn't treat me any different. There was no walking on eggshells. You know what I mean? And I get that because as society, we're still, we're still uneducated in, in so many things around mental health is people are like, you know, and they go soft in the voice as mm. well. How are you? You know what I mean? Okay. Oh, yeah, it's terrible. You know what I mean? and, and you're like... It's like a Les Dawson sketch, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and it's... How are you? You're all right. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, is it, oh, yeah, oh, is it yeah, difficult you know, for you? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, oh. You know what I mean? And you're like, 
you know, and then it becomes like, why are you treating me differently? Um, because, you know, if, if I had a broken leg, you wouldn't be treading on eggshells. I think it's because people don't know how to behave. Yes. Yeah. And to a certain extent, I didn't. You know, like, and what do some people do in terms of friendship if they don't know how to behave or they don't know how to interact? They don't. Yes, you know, they so just they don't they don't want to stare at the pain, or they don't know how to do it, so they just don't. That's even worse, actually. Yeah. I feel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, I found like it, you know, because when I'd meet up with my brothers or whatever, nothing had changed. It was just the same, and they didn't treat me any differently. And if anything, they'd start ribbing me a bit more in time. You know what I mean? I, that's I, the way I, that men I, show I, love, stereotypically, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know. What I mean? uh, do you know what? I, I watched the uh, documentary recently about Daniel Ratcliffe. And, oh, his stunt um, double. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet. I've heard good reviews, yeah, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you know what? Like, I've well enough on more than one occasions, but his network around him, the fellow stuntmen, Daniel Ratcliffe, the people himself, it was no different. That's what he wanted, you know what I mean? And I think, really, that's where I get that kind of different side of um, support with, with our Andrew and Dominic. Is it, it just didn't change, you mm. know what I mean? It was just the three of us putting the world to rights, you know, talking about football, you know, watching a match or something. So we got, there's no kind of like pleasant distractions and stuff like that. And it just kind of felt like, oh, this is a bit more like normal life. Mm. You know what I mean? And they don't see some of the dark side stuff, you know what I mean? Although they're aware of it, but it's different in the sense that Pam's like a 24-7 really. She's seen the good, the bad and the very ugly. And it's a difficult support way in that sense because it's difficult for her to see all them things, mm. you, know, you know, without a doubt. But in terms of it's a different relationship, obviously, with my brothers, I really appreciated that, just that candid sense of being normal. You know, like, you know, it was, you know, sometimes your heart for those kind of, going back to the way things were and it, it's not that I'm trying to return to my previous life it's just that I appreciate that continuity they're not treating me any differently mm. it still is you know obviously still is to this day without these people in your life without Dominic without Andrew without Pam where do you think you'd be yeah it, it's um do you know I'd, I'd like to say I'd never thought of that but you know I'd be a liar to Freddie it, it, it's there's, I don't want to go too all in on the morbid side of things, but you'd say there's a high degree of probability I wouldn't be here. You know, as difficult as that is to verbalise and say this out loud, now's probably, I think, been a good time for me to, uh, and I'm really glad you invited me on on this because it's when I met you down in London I felt safe you know we talked about that before Freddie you know like I can see when I said about the eyes being the mirror of the soul like you know I, I could see where you were at where you're coming from and this is the important message isn't it or, or a big part of it I 100% understand and get people who suffer significant trauma be it injury loss whatever and fade away and nobody blame them you know what I mean? Because you think, oh my God, what happened to that poor fella? Jeez, you know what I mean? And I, without those people we're talking about, got a good friend as well, Ken, who, you know, always been there. I just would have faded away. Mm. You know, like, and you can lose the will to live, can't you? But I'm not saying about self-harm. You know, like, you can literally just fade to nothing. And I could, realistically, thinking about some of the things that have, gone through my head and, and where I've been and difficulties I've had I could have just literally faded to nothing and as a result of that 
not being here. It's hard to say, Freddie, you know, like it, it, this is this is proper deep stuff, isn't mm. it? You know what I mean? But that's a sad reality. I, I don't think I would have had the internal power within myself or energy to get through it on my own. Mm. I wouldn't have done it. I want to talk about something that we've both done now and something you mentioned earlier, yeah. which is EMDR therapy. So tell me how the EMDR therapy has helped your mental health and perhaps allowed you to release the emotion and change the way your mind perceives the accident and what happened to you. What a time to bring this up. I haven't got to the proper nuts and bolts of the EMDR yet. I'm four sessions in. Oh, you've got away yet, mate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The the really bonkers stuff is to come. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? Total respect to the guy I'm seeing at the moment. He spent three sessions, three one-hour sessions getting to know me. You know, and you think like, you think, oh, we're only going to get six sessions or whatever. And, you know, and you get that pattern and, and he's like, oh, look, you know, I've read, he was well-versed in, you know, where I was at and stuff. It's a delicate time at the moment because I've had some of this with some physiotherapy recently is nothing's ever easy freddie with me it's, it's always such as life mate it's always like, such you know what i mean it's like you see these professionals and it's like this is going to take a significant period of treatment and help and support and you're like okay there's no sticking plasters with me you know it's big gaping wounds you know unfortunately like and what it has done again you know totally open totally candid with this guy it, it has opened up a lot of old wounds like i will say Things probably I haven't talked about in a period of time. But yeah, and then yesterday, what he'd done, he, he had like the stimulated things, but he put them under my legs. I know some people, they hold on to them. He's going to start with lights, I think, with me. It's kind of sorting out that safe zone. Mm-hmm. That's what yesterday was about. And it was very calming, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, I was quite surprised, you know, like because I think what's happened in terms of when you're opening up old wounds, there is a knock-on effect to that, obviously. You know, it does heighten the anxiety side of things, you know, the depression, you know, that kind of feeds into those other ones. But I'm better at doing it now and managing it and being more open about it because I understand, hopefully, the potential long-term benefits and effects of it, you know. So I'm fascinated to learn more about it. I'm only reading what he's given me. I don't Dr. Google things, you know, because... Well, we've all been guilty of that mm-hmm. you know what I mean uh, you know like, I, and I don't do anything like that now because particularly like in regards to physical effects of mental health issues you know like so you know the physical effects on the body so you know increased heart rate you, you know dizziness all that kind of thing and you doctor google them right and you are either pregnant or you've got cancer you know what I mean so like you know uh, <laughs> and you know so you know i'm not hoping the emdr therapy wouldn't do that to me so what i am doing i'm keeping my mind very open about it i have heard lots of good things about it some for myself as well about what the benefits of emdr but i'm kind of very much guided by what this guy's information wise is either giving me or, or is telling me but the actual the safe zone thing i did yesterday it felt very calm after that mm. You know, like I felt, you know, in myself physically as well, you know, like wrinkles had gone, you know, like, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, like it was just that, like, you know, my face felt relaxed, you know, my body felt real. I didn't feel as tense. And I was like, this is so going into next week, 
this is where we're starting to get into the, the nuts and bolts, if you like, yeah. of, of, the, of the therapy. You've got itself. that all to come, so mate. Gonna... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But enjoy it. Enjoy the process, indeed. man. Yeah. yeah. Let's reflect on your mental health journey, mate. So first of all, what yeah. has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? Oh, right. Okay. Good question. It's taught me about who I am, who I really am, not who I thought I was. It's taught me resilience in the sense that once I saw a glimmer of hope for things that could be better, that I, I grabbed it with both hands. Well, <laughs> grabbed it with my good hand and took on the reins of that, you know, and it, it taught me, I think, a little bit more to be resilient. It's taught me to to have respect for yourself and to respect for yourself and obviously you know the respect for other people as well but also that I didn't give up I could have done well I did at one point I think but I felt like I did have that internal strength still and that kind of resilience to take myself from where I was and recognize how bad that situation was I'm sat here talking to you now Freddie you know what I mean I wouldn't have been able to have done that probably until relatively recently to be open about this and I think that's where to celebrate those little victories as well that's a really important part of the process in life not just in physical issues mental health issues or something you know you become a little bit complacent sometimes I think in life and I think you also you know you should celebrate those little, in, in, in a little way but you know each step as a positive step and to celebrate those achievements as you go along the way and as a final question before we move on if you could go back and talk to the Leo who was thinking about being a music teacher, the Leo who had just woken up in hospital realising he could no longer use his right arm, or yeah. the Leo who was really struggling with those post-traumatic stress triggers and worried for his own safety, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Right. Wow. You have some good questions, don't you, Freddie? <laughs> you have some absolute belters, mate. Like, uh, I think if I took the one in the middle, the hospital thing in the middle of that situation there is is to really to look at the issue that things are going to change for you. If I could sit down with myself and say, let's try and not be in denial here that your life from now on is going to change because I didn't want it to. You know, I, I tried to pretend it wasn't and I, I didn't want it to. This change is happening. You know, whether you like it or not, it's happened. It's going to happen to you. And my advice would be, and I think this is where I've learned to look at things differently in a positive way, is that change doesn't necessarily mean the end. You know, you can make that change for the positive totally understandable if people you know it affects them and impacts them completely in a negative way for the rest of their lives but you have the power and only you have the power to make that change for the positive you know when I go back to when I started teaching I went into teaching as twee and as horrible you know as this may sound to make a difference to empower change you know to give young people the power to acknowledge you know a bit of maybe a little bit of wisdom there and a little bit of experience for them to go on and do whatever they want to do with their lives be it music be it sport be it whatever and 
when you get into you know into your working life you know and i've been teacher 25 years now so it's all i've ever known education to say potentially you know that could change you know what i mean and your life could change in a different way it's frightening it's fearful people are reluctant to change aren't they because they're frightened of the potential what happens if it all goes wrong but to look back on yourself and say you have to be the driving force of that and you have to believe in yourself if you want to make that power of change a positive thing and not get consumed by negativity because that's in effect what happened if i could advise myself a little bit earlier on that's probably what i'd say We've talked all about your mental health journey, mate. I want to talk about your business journey now and the massive positive you've taken out of the trauma of the crash, which is your business, your baby, Handicraft. So tell me first about how the idea for the business came about, why you were attracted to woodwork and design as a field, and how it became this vehicle for your recovery. That's interesting, right? Okay, so it really stemmed from a counseling session it was a moment of enlightenment i'll never forget this one it was just kind of out of nowhere really i was talking about things that were going on how low i was feeling how frustrated i was just doing menial everyday tasks like butter and toast you know what i mean and chasing that around the plate you know and it was like and the counselor suggested have you ever considered learning a new skill and i was like what and she said all you're doing in your life is you are beating up your new self against your former self. And all that will ever be is a negative, you know, because you see you're dominant right-handed, you know, we're talking about the music and stuff. And it was like that kind of almost start reality when the nice thing that is gone, but that's not to say it can't be replaced. And she sent me off. So I want you to go and have a think about it. And when you see me next week, come back with some ideas and we'll talk it through. And I'd always had an interest in woodworking, although I'd never done any woodworking. I'd only done it like in the first year and second year at school. You know, I didn't even do it as an option. You know, so that was like six weeks in the year or something you'd do it. But I was always interested in it. My uncle is a, like a hobbyist furniture maker. He's made all the furniture in the house and he has his little workshop in the back garden and stuff. And I always liked the idea. And, and as you do, but a lot of things now is if you want to learn about something, you go to YouTube, don't you know, or, or for better or for worse, mm-hmm. I would say, you know, and, you know, and I include my own channel in that. And I came, you know, I was like, this is interesting. I got, went down one of those wormholes where you just started watching one thing, you watch the recommendation and it was kind of people working with reclaimed stuff. And I was like, this is interesting. So I went back the following week and I said, she said, oh, have you come up with any idea? I said, yeah, I want to learn woodworking. I want to take up woodworking. And she looked really i was like you know uh, and i said this down and i said i think she thought i was going to come back saying i want to learn spanish or something you know something that you could actually no comprende you know. por favor <laughs> yeah 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 you can actually do pretty easily one-handed you know mm. like you know turning the page on a book and she went okay and she said how are you going to go about that and i was like well i don't know yet and i said i said we got a garage and so she said right i want you to come back with a a bit of a plan how are you going to do it and that's how it started I bought some second-hand tools, you know, cleared out some space in the garage, bit of a worktop, workbench sort of thing. I got in touch with a couple of content creators on, on YouTube, real, you know, guys are massive now on the UK YouTube makers who I speak to regularly now, like, to ask for some advice. I said, you know, this is the situation. I was right-hand dominant, can only use my left hand now. 
have you any any advice for me? And, and these people getting back, giving up the time. And I thought this is really interesting, you know, freely as well. You know, um, I kind of realised my thought process was, and this is how I went back to the council, is that started watching loads of YouTube stuff. Uh, spoke to my uncle about it as well. Is the majority of actions in woodworking, in, in lots of things really, is you are holding something with your non-dominant hand whilst you're working with your dominant hand. So if you're, for example, screwing something and you're holding the piece of wood down and you're using a drill driver or a screw or a saw or whatever, you know, and you think. So what it really ignited, and this was probably the best part of it, is school teaching, a lot A lot of it's about problem solving mm-hmm. because it's every day, you know, nothing goes to plan. Everything always changes. And it's how you cope with those changes. And the, it really ignited that dormant problem solving part of my brain. Because then I thought, well, if I can secure something in place, so if I can get some clamps, clamp it down, I can then use my new dominant arm and, and do the sawing. So it's, it's fixed in place. It's safe. It's not going to hurt me. And literally, Freddie, that's how it started. It became twofold. It was brilliant physically because if you've ever tried to, I mean, you're left-handed and if you ever tried to, you know. I'm left everything, left-footed, left-handed, left-brained, might as well be. (laughs) If you've only got the use of what was your non-dominant hand, you don't realise how bad it is until it's the only one you can use. And it was shocking, you know. Maybe I had a little bit of a head start on other people because of the piano playing stuff, but it was still very, very weak in comparison to my right hand. So what it was doing, it was helping me to become left-handed because you're having to learn those little fine motor control skills and stuff, you know, that, uh, so that started the woodworking. It was helping me physically, but it was also really helping me mentally, you know, because what was happening and I started off Freddie and I was making tea light holders. So I was taking a piece of wood like, like that. And I still make them now. Um, I'm making things like just dead simple tea light holders yeah for people listening on audio i just held a tea light holder <laughs> on, on the screen all right so just realized that and what was happening was it was something i was really being craving for was just kind of getting lost in the moment and the anxiety demon the depression demon stuff they started to go a bit quieter like because i what you know i wasn't dwelling you know i was just trying to figure out like thinking marking things or people in the woodworking profession hate sanding hate it i love it you just zone out escapism if you have a podcast yeah yeah yeah, you have a podcast on or you know that kind of thing or or you're just literally in your own thought and you just kind of and it was and i thought this is really interesting and it got a bit consumed because like pam was coming out when you realize what what time it is like you know like no you know like so in tandem with the counseling so that, that carried on but it, it became a helpful tool became like a no pun intended coping yeah, yeah literally it became like a like a coping mechanism mm. coping strategy whatever you want to call it i don't know and it just kind of grew i had no idea which way it was gonna go but you know a candle holder became a chopping board chopping board became a coffee table you know and then it just kind of was like I started to get you know a bit better I was learning as I was going I was learning by mistakes but there's not a lot in the world of disability woodworking out there fairly niche fields yeah (laughs) yeah it is you know like you know not many of us you know there's more who are starting to appear now but what it was was I think was kind of it was engaging all those kind of positive things in my mind because I was watching 
you know, YouTube stuff and watching tutorials and things going, can I make that work for me? Can I adapt that so it can only be used one hand? Can I come up with some kind of jig or something to make it work? Can I use that tool safely? You know, all those kind of things started going on and it just kind of grew and grew. And part of it became, because bearing in mind this time, I'm, I'm still closed off from, from the wider world, if you like. You know, I'm still very much insular and wasn't going out and things. I was, you know, I'm thinking, how am I going to get back in, in, into a classroom here? You know, I, I can't stand you know in front of a mirror never mind standing in front of 30 kids and and then I thought like well watching these YouTube videos could I give that a go maybe could I possibly try and do that film a few things on my phone and put it out there and see what happens and I made that decision I thought right I'm going to go for it and give it a go I didn't have enough self-confidence or belief to speak to be in front of the camera so it was kind of shots of just like me just like me arm on the workbench and clamping things down and and I've done a couple of videos and they got a really, really good response. Really good. You know, a couple of people mentioned me on this video, which, you know, guided them towards my channel. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. Because I think people, it was just kind of out of maybe an interest in woodworking, but also like, how how's he managed to do that? You know, people go, I couldn't do that. How's he doing it? So they're watching it out of this, like, kind of maybe this morbid curiosity. I don't know. So that's where it started. So it became probably equal in terms of woodworking and making and content creating and then you know it just kind of grew and grew Freddie you know to the point where I mean certainly my proudest achievement is where I'm sat in now I'm sat in my workshop now this is pun intended I built single-handedly like this is a big space but you know it's 24 foot by 12 foot so seven nearly seven and a half meters for the UK it's, it's a big workshop like and there's so much planning and prep and design ideas because initially I'm going it's impossible I couldn't do it or maybe I could do it but I'd need loads of help but it became almost like a mission if you like in terms of not me being stubborn going I don't want any help it was I don't want any help because I want this to be my own I want Mm. this you know I want to be able to you want ownership of it yeah 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 absolutely I want to be able to step back and go I done that so that became like a, a series of many videos over the, over the course of it, building this. But that fed into, you know, the positive vibes, that fed into the actual feeling of worth again, you know, thinking, you know, that's where the woodworking stuff became like, a, I felt functional. Again, that worthwhile sense of self again, which I'd lost. And that journey I've been documenting now for nearly four years three or four years on nearly four years on YouTube and also from becoming a, a hobby to becoming a part-time business you know or you know to becoming a small business I should say mm. and that's just to look back you know sat in that counselor's office in the place I was in I don't like the analogies of you know it saved me and all that, you know, that I'm not really that like to go down those kind of routes but it certainly was a fundamental part and still is of how my life's changed mm. you know for the impact of positive that's been really interesting ready a really important moment seems to come where you put your face on camera for the first time mm. and you did your review of a 20 pound drill which seems very small in comparison <laughs> now but yeah 20 pound impact driver from aldi yeah, yeah. However, yeah. how much confidence did that initial video give you, especially after the positive feedback you had previously been receiving for not being on camera to now being on yeah. camera? 
it was a massive step. I remember it. I, I was getting feedback from my previous videos going, it'd be nice to see you. You know, it'd be nice to hear what you have to say about things. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not really there yet. And eventually I thought, right, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to have, you know, at some point. And it wasn't a long video, but, you know, it's a, it's, it's a tool I got from Aldi, accessible, you know, very cheap. I thought it might have an opinion. You know, so I did it and I went for it. And the feedback on that was massive in a really positive way because I'll give you a little bit of context. Prior to accident, prior to starting woodworking, I've had no social media in my life. All right. As a, that makes as a sense teacher, as a teacher, you're not though, talk- doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you're basically actively encouraged to stay on. Yeah. And if you uh, have it, under- you have changed names and private accounts uh, and all that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All, so no one can find you. Stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So I'm completely naive to this world of social media and, and YouTube. So when I started, I'm thinking like the people of, you know, Form B, maybe Liverpool, you know, you know, they'll get a few watching it. <laughs> and you don't realize it well i didn't because i'm stupid and naive at the time like it's it's a global you know it's a i global forget people thing. listen to this podcast mate <laughs> <laughs> that might be because of my listener numbers i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so i've done this i think the feedback from doing the, the impact driver video was people want to see you because what they do is they form relationships by your facial expressions, you know, you know the way you're talking, the way you, you know, your repertoire, and if they like you or they perceive that, you know, oh, he seems like, it. and you know, they always say, I always seem like a genuine bloke, or you always seem like, you know, something nice, and then that's how those relationships are formed. And you could do the stuff where you're off camera most, or you're not speaking, and but you're not forming those relationships with people who are wanting, and that's what's happened with me really, is. People are investing in you in terms of they want to see you do well. When people who've been around for quite a while have followed us for a bit and they know what's happened, you get people who like parachute in, drop in, and haven't got a clue. You know, like, think, what's that fella? What's that fella got his arm tucked away? You know what I mean? What's up, what's up with him? You know what I mean? You know, so yeah, it happens. But you've got people who've been there for the long haul and they are invested because they want to see you do well. They want to see you achieve. And that's amazing. And I think that only really happens as a result of getting to know you. Or, you know, at a level, you know, obviously there'll be full disclosure on, I was going to say online, but I just have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that ship sailed, mate. (laughs) (laughs) You You know what I mean? But, you know, I do share things with folk now. If I hadn't have done those front facing videos, talking ed type things, you know, the way I do my videos now, then that kind of engagement wouldn't have happened. Yes. I took some bottle though for it. You mm. know, like I was, it's bizarre, like, you know, because talking to yourself in a workshop or in a, you know, I'm, uh, in the garage, I'm thinking, oh, the neighbors are probably listening, thinking he's, he's probably lost it now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> People think that about me every day. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, I'm shaking, like nervous, you know, thinking what, you know, like, so, you know, you can just press stop and press record again. But, you know, you don't think like that at the time. But that was, in terms of content creating, that was a defining moment, man. Mm. But also it's helped me as a, as a woodworker as well. You know, uh, I remember that one quite clearly. You know, that was that was a big moment. My next question is based on an analogy whereby you spoke earlier about those light bulb moments and the hundreds of light bulb moments yeah. you used to get as a day as a teacher. And 
when footballers retire or sports people in general, but I largely want to talk about footballers here, they talk about not being able to replace that feeling of scoring a goal or being in the dressing room, but largely scoring a goal. When you're completing pieces of work, does it Mm. A, replace that level of pride or achievement or moment when you're helping those kids learn a particular song or master their own craft? Mm. Or B, is it just a different feeling altogether, but still good? Right. I've never really considered this. I was going to mention the football analogy mm. before about how they struggle when they retire. Yeah. You know, uh, because they said they can't replace that hit, that buzz, that feeling, the camaraderie, the dressing room, all that kind of stuff. You know, that all goes, doesn't it? This, mate, is better. The reason why I can't say, I think what it is, is it's kind of... Now, I've produced some stuff now to a standard that I, I'm happy to compare my stuff with, you know, let's say able body makers, other makers, whatever, you know. other As things. you should, mate. Um, mm. Yeah, right. And I think there's a different expectation. There's different, obviously, timelines. Things take longer for me. But if I make that clear to potential clients, customers or whatever, you know, because it just does, you know, that's just the reality of it. But. I think it's because it's the pride in what I've managed to achieve because I never thought I'd be able to do that. There's an aspect of that, but it's also, it's kind of against the odds. And, you know, people are at first impressed with your work, you know, if they see something that you've done. And then if they find out how you've managed to achieve it, all things considered, it's like, wow. You know what I mean? I've done some stuff recently. I've just finished a, an oak resin custom-made desktop for a lady. And I was like, wow. You know what I mean? The whole process, it took a long time. took four months to make. And towards the end, when it was becoming apparent that the standard I was happy with, what a feeling. You know what I mean? And I think it's because you're celebrating that sense of achievement. You're celebrating that quality of work. But you're also, I, for such a long period of time, maybe hid things in regards to being a disabled person, you know, because you still even, I know it's daft to to maybe think this way, but, you know, that feeling of you feel embarrassed. Mm. Or don't want it to become your identity as well on the other side, I guess. as to to, That's it, you know, and yeah, that's what I think I've experienced that crossover recently. And it's probably been a little bit more exposure because of the TV stuff, The Handmade is the first thing is the quality of the work you know is the disability is kind of almost forgotten about in yes a sense. that's what you want isn't it you know yeah. do you know what i mean you want to be known as someone who produces nice furniture regardless of what work, your background you know. is or what your story is yeah yeah absolutely you know and i think in regards to say you know music was a brilliant you know i, I was always i was really sporty as well freddie and it does give you that real buzz that endorphin that you know, that kind of, you know, even at low level, even at low amateur level stuff. But this is different. This now is different because it's celebrating achievements. The disability is not forgotten about, but almost forgotten about. But it's all the better that you've been able to achieve it despite, mm. you know, certain physical, mental adversities. Because I know my journey, you know, I don't like the term journey, but you know what I mean? I, I, I know what I've gone through in these last five and a half years now and to maybe be coming out of some other side of that and going I've got to be proud of this got to be and that gives you that kind of 
real hit, that real buzz. And you know what? I'd say it's better. Mm. You know, and I'm thinking about it now, particularly recent, relatively recently, say over the last, I don't know, year or so, maybe a little bit less than that. It's great, mate. It really is. And to have that as a kind of a business initiative as well, I think it's given me the confidence to to speak out and speak up a little bit more about that kind of stuff. You know, I was genuinely honoured about the British Business Bank stuff, the ambassador stuff, to and to go down in a couple of minutes, but just to have that opportunity to speak about things. The greatest thing about this is the business is me. It's literally, you know what I mean? You know, that's literally what it is. You know, it, you know, it, it's literally heart and soul, me on a, I was going to say plate, but on a platter, you know, like, uh, so, and being able to talk about the aspects of what makes this unique, really. And it is very unique what's going on here uh, in terms of like my, let me be honest, let me be open about it, my disability, that kind of stuff. And what I think the, the business has done is it, it's given me that confidence to talk a little bit more about it because I think there's a story to tell. I think also it might be a little bit empowering for people to hear some things like this because I'm not the only person who's suffered trauma, life-changing injuries, that kind of thing. And it can happen at any age, you know. And what's been really interesting with the YouTube stuff is an international sort of thing, people getting in touch, you know, regular contact from people in the US, in Australia, in Europe. I've had occupational therapist nurses getting in touch saying, we've got a lad who's an apprentice joiner. He's lost the use of his hand. I'm going out to speak to him about modifications and stuff. Can you give me any advice? And you're like, wow, you know what I mean? So that level of input, you know, because I don't want to be the voice of disability because that's not what it's about. And the disability has, it's such a huge umbrella. You can't be the voice for one thing. And what I might say might offend some people with mm-hmm. disabled people. But I do think I feel a little bit in a better place now to talk about this kind of stuff because you know if it can help a handful of other people then all the better for it you spoke earlier in the pod about there being times where you gave up and there must have been other times where you could have succumbed to victimhood or kind of eternal perpetual self-pity with a fairly big justifiable reason i might add what stopped you Mm. yeah um in say recent times, so if I say if I went over the last few years, when I fell at the bottom of the well, you know everything you said there that was me for a period of time. As shameful as it it might sound, I was there. It was the darkest period of my life. Look back on it with without a doubt, and the effect it had on the nearest dearest people around me was horrendous it really was and I think I've got that internal part in me now that I do not want to go back to being what I was you know because you know physically the effect it it was having on me the mentally the effect that you know that it it wasn't life Freddie it was just existence that's all it was you know there was nothing to look forward to there was no interest in things there was just felt like just continued misery all the time and I fell into that and I I won't say I only have myself I only have myself to blame that's probably not right well only yourself was going to get out of it let me put it that way yeah you know you can have all the support all the love all the patience and kindness in the world around you if you're not prepared to 
put the hard yards in and the and the graft in, and it, and it is, you know, it, it's not easy to dig yourself out of that hole. And I have wobbles. I use the term wobble. I think you know, we all do. I have tremors, which is a bit worse than a wobble. But when I spoke before about mentioned the offer about core values, I had those rocked and in effect stripped from me at one point. But instilled in that core value and a part of me now is I don't want to go back to being that person again. You know, I do not want to go back down that road. And that's probably that's probably the main driving force behind it. There will be other things, but when you ask the question there, that's the first thing that popped into me. I just, I do not want to be going back to that person I became. And as a final question, mate, as we reflect on this business journey, what has it taught you yep. about yourself too? Uh, <laughs> there's an aspect of probably never too old to learn new things. You know, uh, I'm not saying I'm old, old, but I'm not young anymore <laughs> anymore and i think being open to learning new things because you know i am not a person of well i am now but i'm not a person i wasn't a business person you know all i've ever known is getting me pay slip and my pensions taken out and my national insurance and my taxes all taken care of so i've been learning as i've gone along being open to advice reaching out for advice that's been a massive thing and you know even i'm not trying to say this is a sales pitch but you know but the british business bank thing again that's been brilliant for me because i didn't know about any of that stuff you know why would i so yeah it's taught me about being open to learning new things it's taught me about being resilient in a different way to probably the way i was because you know you're managing everything in terms of you've got to be mindful of if you're a small business or one-man band that single person you're living with a disability you've got to manage yourself properly so it's taught me that self-awareness a little bit better as well you know as i've been doing this it's been been interesting it really has it's exciting as well it really is it's kind of like you're very enthusiastic about things you know when i come in here you know i spent most of my life being surrounded by thousands of people every day in a school environment but i come in here and i'm on my own and i actually quite like that kind of now but it has that degree of excitement about it and it's taught me so much you know i I literally i could do a podcast just on that that'll be part eight (laughs) we've come to our final topic of conversation leo and it's one i try and have with all of my special guests if we have time it is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health so firstly how is your mental health mate Right, quick fire. I'll do my best. All right, okay. <laughs> at the moment, sort of state of transition at the moment. I've been very open. There's kind of some open wounds a little bit with the start of the MDR therapy. So those kind of things are changing. In terms of how it's been this year, not been great, but I feel like, you know, I was waiting for 11 months for the MDR. Mm. Was, you know, that's a significant period. Away. But I feel in a better place at the moment, Hope is probably a good word at the moment. Good to hear, man. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Right. That will be early, mid-40s. So it was not immediately post-crash because the mask wearing was great at the time then. So I was uh, 2018, so I was 42, 43 when it happened. And it was, I'd say, probably months, not in the immediate time after, but in the months after that, mm-hmm. was when I realised that my mental state was having an impact on me physically. Mm. 
So, yeah, so that would say, say about 43. And can you remember the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who is it with? What did you say? And how did you look back on it? Did it feel like on the one hand, a very big moment and a burden or weight had been lifted? Or on the other, something quite yeah. easy and normal to do? Right, yeah. I remember this one absolutely uh, crystal clear. It was when I went for my first counselling session after my meltdown in the doctor's office there. Um, you know, I promised, promised Pam I was going to be completely open and transparent with him. I'll, I'll tell him everything, anything they need to know. And I sat down with this lady and she said, right, you know, you fill in those forms. Have you been in the last two weeks and all that kind of thing. So I started to tell her, I started to tell her about where I was at, how I was feeling. I properly started to offload. She stopped it after about 10 minutes. I'm not saying there was fear in her eyes, but she basically said, I'm sorry, I'm not the person who can help you. So I think I've been assessed on the phone for low level CBT or something like that. And when they actually, when she started to hear what it was, she was like, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to refer you to one of my other more experienced, higher level count. And that was the end of that conversation. You know, like, and, and then it was like, wow, this is pretty big. This, you know what I mean? And then when I went to, for my first proper session, you know, cause there was PTSD related stuff, I think was coming up. I didn't know that at the time and I listed like seven or eight things that I was feeling experiencing thoughts feelings and stuff and it was really because you pulled out a piece of paper out of a bag or a satchel thing passed them to me and it was a list of about 12 things and I just said seven or eight of them it was like it was like the the magical card thing you know what I mean I was like how'd you do this and that was like a, a light bulb moment in the sense when well, you're not on your own you're not on your own with this you're not the only person feeling this and I was like, wow, yeah, that was done. And outside of loud bangs, what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, yeah. being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Good question. Right. Being in busy areas, people largely people populated that sort of really struggle, you know, to this day struggle with that. Being jostled or bumped is not good for me you know what I mean oh, I, Lon- I, London I've must have to... been difficult then <laughs> the tube must have been a big, <laughs> yeah, big yeah, trigger yeah, that was a challenge yeah. yeah you know what I mean because you feel like you put this protective circle around you and London was interesting you know <laughs> so but that, a micromanaged situation that's a difficult one certain smells there's just like a smell of burning rubber type yes, smell yep. obviously you mentioned the sounds the most difficult one to process, Freddie, is when you can't rationalise a trigger. That just happens sometimes. It happened on Tuesday. It happened at night time on Tuesday. And also night terrors. I suffer with night terrors. And in the sense that you wake up revisiting of the moment, if you like, and you're pouring sweat, you're locked out. You know what I mean? You're literally locked solid. So the night terror stuff, not nice. Uh, so, yeah, pretty much just all the unexpected loud bangs, being in busy places, jostled, bumped that kind of thing, certain smells. Not so much in terms of things said, and I'm sure there are some examples, but don't immediately spring to mind, but those five certainly do. And conversely then, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Okay, some of the CBT stuff, some of the grounding techniques, you know, like the five things you can see, four things you can, that kind of stuff. They have a place I found they're good if you are getting your traits early. 
So if you're recognising, say, your anxiety levels at an early stage and you're able to, that your grounding technique, so you're planting your feet on the floor and that kind of thing, or they've got a plate and they can help for that. I don't find them helpful when, say, if we got on the scale of 0 to 100, if I get past 30 or 40, you know, I mean, if I can't get it back, you know, and that leads to the meltdown sort of stuff. Early intervention, they do help. The safe space, safe zones things, Pam's brilliant with that. You know, getting removed, getting out of a, a certain situation, uh, even to, you know, to a quieter place, or it might even just to sit in the car or something, forget me, you know, but because I do drive now, but I don't drive very far and I don't really drive on my own. It's kind of a safe space in the sense you can sit there and you can, you know, not moving and go, right, we're all right here now, just to bring yourself back into the real world at that point. The EMDR is going to be interesting, and I'd you know love to catch up with you at some point on that one further down the line because that's um, an interesting one. That certainly positive early signs, but we'll, let's see what happens with that one. And what is the best book, or as I call it, mental health bible you've read for your mental health? Right. Now it can be self help or mental health related. It doesn't exclusively have to be. Mm. And if you can't think of a book, yeah. a album. TV show, any piece of popular culture. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Totally open and honest with you. I haven't read any books about it. Fine. Um, in terms of it's kind of, obviously there's a huge place for those kind of stuff. I don't want to be self-medicating in that sense. I know I might sound a bit daft, but I don't want to be taking things on board that maybe might not be the right thing for mm-hmm. me at that time. So like I said about the EMDR before, you know, I've only read the stuff the guys gave me, you know, I haven't gone and, Yes. Google the whole thing about it because I think it's important that I only get the right amount of, you know, kind of uh, stuff in. So, my music, oh God, I could do an entire podcast on that, mate, is, but there was a period of time I wouldn't even listen to it, full stacks, because I, I do kind of deconstruct songs in my head, like chord sequences, break them down. It's just a thing I do. And I used to translate that on. So I'd hear a song and I'd, I'd be able to pick it up and play it. So that was very difficult. But I look at music entirely in a different way now, but I've got such a very, very taste on it. I've been listening to Paul Oakenfold's the, the Goa mix in here. Recently, oh yeah, you know, like kind of like yeah, trance, yeah, trance, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, from the nineties, you know, like, like ATB you know, till I come, yeah, yeah, five yeah, pm, you yeah. Go, you know, the, yeah, well, you had the uh, Fats and Small guy on one of your. Podcasts, I had Freeman, yeah, I had Russell Small on, yeah, 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 great guy. Yeah, so that that was interesting listening to it, you know. Uh, but, you know, the whole 90s music thing, because I was in Liverpool in the 90s when mm. Cream and the Ministry of the Sound were the two places in the Andy UK. Carroll, mate, Cream, mate. <laughs> so, like, Jeremy Healy, Alistair Whitehead, Pete Song, Boy George, all that. So I love that kind of music from that time. But Paul Oakenfold used to do the trance stuff then. I like that. Beatles, I love. I listen to them. Foo Fighters, you know, yeah. all that. But I've got on to music when I was talking about support books. But no, the short answer to that, mate, is I have uh, <laughs> All good, mate. All good. <laughs> I've got two questions. No, I've got three questions left. The first one is, okay. if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Um, right. Okay. Um, so like live, laugh, love, uh, but not as cringe. <laughs> yeah yeah i'll come back to that one give me one okay let me have a little think on that okay I'll, come back to it, yeah. I'll ask you my next question then which is what do you love about yourself <laughs> out of the frying pan into the fire yeah. uh, you know what that's a tough question because you know going back to sort of you know we said upbringings and stuff you don't really have that kind of and i've, I've never really been that kind of person to say oh you know but i'd say probably give me a trait give me a quality, quality. 
A quality-wise, I'd say pre-accident was always patience. Frequently got told, like, colleagues I've worked with for years are the most patient person I've ever met in my life. Oh, thank you. I've, I kind of lost that a little bit, but I'd probably say I've replaced it with resilience. I'd say, yeah, there's a, a resilience and a determination mm. about things to do now. Not as patient, maybe, as what I used to be. That thing's changed, but mm. I'd say resilience is probably up there now. I know you couldn't think of a book, so give me an album. Oh, I know man. it's a tough question it's for music a... nerds like us. Give me one that give me one that you just really enjoy that's helped. Maybe not like a seminal what, one. What, you mean one that like because albums are an interesting one because you know they used to be made for you to listen from start. Yes, to I know. And now they're like, just playlists. Like Sar- yeah. Sar- yeah, yeah. Now it's an, and then people just cherry pick now, mm. don't they? But if you listen to say Sergeant Pepper's, God, you really live up to these stereotypes here, mate. Come on. I am, mate. Yeah, yeah. Rubber Soul, Sergeant Pepper's. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, mm-hmm. I think is an incredible album. You know, there was a lady who lived through so much in a, such a short space of time. You know, George Michael, Listen Without Prejudice, one of yeah. them, that is. I've got uh, his uh, Ladies you know, and Gentlemen Best Of, which I listen to quite yeah, religiously. Yeah, so. that's, that's an absolute belter. And one of my favourite so, tunes, uh, I think, well, my, it's one of my favourite dance music records, is Flawless. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. what um, a tune. Faithless Insomnia. Mm. We're well, getting into Born Slippy now, are we? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I remember going to the pictures to watch Train Spotting. But yeah, I'd say Listen Without Prejudice mm. is a brilliant album. Incredible, you know, talented guy. The well um, misses George every day, mate, I say. You know, it's, uh, it does, you know, George Prince was in, you know, you know, I only got into this music kind of later on, you know, I'm always a generation like that. When music is popular at a certain time, I never really like it until later on. <laughs> like the Manchester, you know, like, like the Stone Roses, yeah. the Happy Mondays, all those kind of guys. At the time, I was like, mm, you know, later on, you think, oh, that's incredible, you know, but it's sad music in a, in a certain, like, I don't think there's been any real revolutions, progressions in music for probably 20 years. Most of it's rehashed at the moment. I'd say dance music in the 90s and I would say probably rock music like around that time. But since then, it, it's it's not been the same yeah. for me anyway. I mean, I that's me getting old. Yeah, well, maybe. I'm never going to discount grime because uh, for me, that was a genuinely yeah, great no, music you, genre. No, and yeah, that's an interesting one. I feel like the, the yeah. genres that have really yeah. kind of come out that have been genuinely new have sort of been grime. I think what the 1975 did create a whole new genre of, of alt pop was ridiculously good. And then pff, maybe techno and how it emerged from the 80s onwards. But yeah, I yeah, feel you in a lot yeah, of rehash think, stuff. I do feel you. A lot of it is, you know, a thingy at the time, I never really early. I'm not a massive fan of hip hop, but early hip hop, like Dre's around 2000. Wu Tang, Della Soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those guys, Della Soul were absolute pioneers. Mm. They were amazing. But They're ahead of their that, time, Della Soul, I think massively massively mm. uh, but I never really appreciated at the time until a little bit further down the line so mm. but yeah love all that kind of stuff as well I like classical music as well it's very very taste mate mm. you know what I mean if, if you listen to some of the playlists in here you'd be like same yeah, mate for me what's going <laughs> what's going on in that fella's head <laughs> and as a final yeah. question mate what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it. Right. I think I touched upon this a little bit before and this is partly the reason why I, you know, agreed to do this with you, Freddie, is, let me put it this way, I was just a normal, regular bloke going about his everyday life with a profession with your home everything was not and 
everything changed. Every single thing changed. And I couldn't cope with that change. That's the start reality. I couldn't cope with that change. Going back to what you said, what you say to your former self, if you had that time, I allowed myself to fall down the well too far before I got that help. All right. And if anybody's listening to this now, my advice is that is personally, I don't know if this isn't, I'm not a person from the medical profession. I'm not a person from the psychotherapy profession, but is to seek out support from a professional because they know the help that I've been has been incredible. It's ongoing. I look at it as I'm not after a cure. I just want to stop the naught to a hundred sort of stuff. I, I can live, you know, like the bits in between. I can help, but I'm not, I'm not after any cures or anything. But what I'm after is help to help me manage the situation. You know, manage my mental health. Reach out, go to your doctor, get in touch with it. You know, a lot of GP practices now have specialist mental health nurse intervention people. You know, that's who I saw last December when we talked about the. The MDR offloading to it's difficult offloading to your nearest and dearest probably the hardest thing to do you know because you know your friends the environment's generally not set up right for that kind of thing but the professionals are there and reach out to them do an e consult pick up the phone call into your GPs that kind of thing don't let it run too late the analogy being you know if you found a lump on your neck the quicker you get that lump seen to the better chance you have of it getting sorted. You let that lump grow, manifest. By the time you get help, it's too late. Why do we look at mental health in a different way? We do, don't we? You know, I, we're all guilty of it. You know, hopefully it's what you're doing here, Freddie's trying to help break that stigma. But I've heard it said many times, you break your leg playing football, you, you don't go, I'll be all right. You get the plates put in, you get the bone set, you get the cast on, you get that support. Why should mental health be any different? Why is it? It's because we don't know how to behave properly around it, I don't think yet. As a society, we're all learning, but we need some point in regards to men's mental health in particular, what you're talking about there. We need to kind of accelerate that learning process a little bit, maybe. Leo and Stanley, it's been an absolute mm. journey. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast okay. and talking to me, mate. All right. Thanks, Freddie. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this, mate. Thank you very much. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Leo for being my special guest on this episode's pod, for letting me check in with him and telling me all about the journey of Handicraft and his mental health. I'll put some links to where you can find out more about Handicraft and Leo's journey in the show notes. And as always, I'll sign us off by saying, remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can go to our GoFundMe or go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the ways you can financially support Vent. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.